Father, your faithfulness abounds to us over so many years. We've been through deep waters together, David and Sally and I, and these folks that I'm about to talk to have been through equally deep waters, and you have brought us here. You haven't let the waters go over our head or the flames consume us. So we thank you. Our hearts are full tonight. And I ask you to come and do the kind of mental transformation where it's necessary in my head and in the heads of everybody here for the sake of being able to impart to children categories of thought, concepts, views of reality, conceptualizations of what is that they don't have categories for Yet, this is a mystery, this is a profound mystery, how children come to understand anything at all from nothing to bad ideas or good ideas, life-controlling ideas that are true or false. So we want to be used in this, Lord, at every level of our investment with them. So come and do what needs to be done to maximize the ripple effect of these days in the transformation of children into Christ-exalting, God-centered, Bible-saturated oaks of righteousness till the day they die or you come. I ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever we teach children, we must be concerned not simply to indoctrinate them. So let me clarify just as, as a kind of protection against anything else I might say uh, being misunderstood, what I mean by indoctrination, which we shouldn't do. By that, I mean uh, putting thoughts into a child's head without a due concern that they should have a good reason for believing them. Putting thoughts into a child's head without a a due concern that they should also have good reasons for believing the ideas that you're putting into their heads. In other words, indoctrination tries to preserve a viewpoint from group to group or from generation to generation without helping each new group or each new generation be able to test all things and hold fast to what is good. So you have to not only think, okay, it would be right for me to take the truths that I know and put them into the heads of these little persons. That's right. You should do that. They're going to have something in their heads. And it'll be true or false. And so to want to have truth go into their heads is a very good thing. But... You should also care that in the process of putting the truths in their head, you're thinking about the process by which they learn how to think of those truths. The process by which how they support those truths and get more of those truths and spread those truths. So it's not just block of information here goes into that head, and it has a block of information. 
There are other things going on that prevent that from being indoctrination. So the assumption there is that we do what we do, uh, in, not only to get what, that is, what is the truth, and the why, why someday will they believe this, so I want to put some foundation under it. There's a, a third thing, a modeling, a how. So what, why, how, the how of getting that what in and providing the wherewithal to test and know the why. There's a how. I'm very self-conscious. Right now, I'm self-conscious about doing that. In, in fact, I, my approach here tonight will be a little different than the way I would ordinarily talk to any group because I feel like I'm talking to teachers mainly or at least people who care a lot about teachers. Therefore, I'm thinking that the way I want to be heard here is not just, okay, here's, here's some information about God's centrality, but how does he think about that? In fact, how does he think about thinking about that in a way that helps others think about it that way? Because that's what teachers do. They, they sit down and they, they think about what they're thinking about to get it clear in their own heads what they mean, and then they do these other things about those little minds out there and how they want those little minds to be able to know why they believe this and, and how they want those little minds to see how that truth is being imparted. And when I preach, that's the way I'm thinking about people. I'm doing preaching in a way that won't just transfer one theological viewpoint from one head to another, but will do it in a way that they think about thinking in a certain way, and they think about the Bible in a certain way, and they think about supporting ideas in a certain way and talking about them in a certain way. So all of that, just to put some distance between me and anybody who would say the job of teaching is to indoctrinate or to transfer your ideas to the ideas of a child. It is so much more as much as we believe in the transfer of a body of knowledge because the Bible certainly sees it that way. So that's the first caution. Here's the second thing. This is kind of off my front burner in the last two days. It has occurred to me, and all this is setting you up to get to the real, the real topic of, of God's God-centeredness, which is my assignment. It has occurred to me in thinking about children and the teaching of them that it is amazingly illuminating for all missions and all communication to understand how we do it with children. I mean, it, it works better that way than the other way. Like, okay, I'm going to analyze how I do contextualization over here, and then I'll go do it with children. It, it works better the other way. If you're, if you're focusing on this little being and saying, now, how do you do this? The answers and the light that begins to dawn at that moment shed so much light on this, this missionary thing or this contextualization thing. So here's, here's the thought I had. Um, contextualization is a very big buzzword today. Uh, it's an old reality when it comes to cross-cultural missions. You've always had to learn a foreign language to do missions. The hot button today is you do it 
in Boston and you do it in Seattle and you do it in Atlanta and wherever you are, you are thinking contextualized 20 somethings or contextualized urban professionals or that that way of thinking is just just hot today. And it's it's right, but so limited, so limited. And the limitation of it became much more clear for me when I began to apply it to children. Okay, let's take this little people group called three-year-olds. Now, how useful is the concept of contextualization with a three-year-old? Well, useful, useful, meaning, meaning there's a context here, immaturity, not a lot of words, not a lot of concepts. And so I need to find some overlap because if I use only words that they don't know, I will communicate nothing except that that person is funny or interesting or don't know what he's talking about. But if I use only words that they do know, I won't grow them up beyond their present limitations and immaturity. And as I begin to think through, okay, contextualization, as it's usually understood, is of very limited value here to me. Because what I realize right away is I'm not mainly dealing with a context there in their head and a context here in my head. And I need to find which categories in their head and which categories in my head match enough so that I can get some of mine into them. That won't work. Reason? They have hardly any categories. (laughs) All the categories I care about, they don't even have yet. Which means our task is not mainly contextualization as it's usually understood, but concept creation. Category creation. And as soon as I saw that, I saw that's really what I'm about in most of my preaching. Why? Because even though these folks are adults out there, most of their categories have been shaped by television and movies and advertising and economics and the world, and I not only have the huge task of creating some, i got to destroy others. At least with the children, depravity is kind of unformed. There's going to be rebellion here, but they don't have some really well-formed anti-Christ concepts to throw at me. I can build conceptualizations. I can, I can build structures of the universe and of, of the world and of family life and everything I can create here if I'm, if I'm thinking that way. That was very illuminating for me, for what I do most of the time in dealing with more mature people to just think about how this concept of contextualization is of very limited value with a two or three year old. And then I come over here and I see, Yes, and it has its great limitations in evangelism and missions as well, because we if if you say that your main task or let's say just only task is contextualization in evangelism with adults, you will assume something you shouldn't assume, namely that they have the constructs of thought They have the categories of thought. They have the concepts to take biblical reality and fit it in. They don't. They don't have them. I'll try to give you a couple of uh, 
several examples here because that's kind of vague the way I've left it. Here's what I mean by by structures of thought that your average run of the mill child for sure won't have and grown up unchurched person probably won't have. Here's a category, a way a way of thinking. God rules the world, the world of bliss and suffering and sin, right down to the roll of the dice and the fall of a bird, the driving of a nail into the hand of the Son of God. And yet, even though he wills such sin and suffering that it be, he is perfectly holy and never sins. Now, that's a category. That's a, that's a view. That's a way of conceptualizing God, holiness, sin, freedom in a package that most people, it is inconceivable that such a thing be. That God would ordain the murder of the Son of God and be sinless in doing so. These are things that have to be created in people's heads. That's a hard job. It's an impossible job. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. But he uses words. Another example, God governs all the steps of all people, both good and bad, at all times, in all places, such that all are totally accountable before him and will bear the just consequences of his wrath if they do not believe in Christ. They will bear the just consequences of his wrath, and he totally controls all their decisions. Your average person does not bring that conception to church. They, they, they hear it, and it just sounds like double talk. Third, all people are dead in their trespasses and sins and are not morally able to come to Christ because of their rebellion, and yet they are responsible to come to Christ and will be punished if they don't. A fourth one. Jesus Christ is the one person, is one person with two natures, divine and human, such that he upheld the world by the word of his power while living in his mother's womb. Fifth, sin, though committed by a finite person in the confines of finite time, is nevertheless deserving of a infinitely long punishment because it's a sin against an infinitely worthy God. Or lastly, by way of illustration, the death of one God-man, Jesus Christ, so displayed and glorified the righteousness of God that God is not unrighteous to declare righteous the ungodly people who simply believe in him. You you should say that to a Muslim. And there's so many pieces of that sentence that are totally unintelligible. And it's not because you can't find words. They could say all the words. It's structures of thought. It's it's the way things fit together. It's possible meanings inside structures. Now, what I'm saying is, with children, at least we don't have to undo the wrong structures of the world. We've got sin to deal with, for sure. But we are, as it were, starting from um, structural scratch. 
we're starting from a conceptual blankness. This is a mystery. I do not, I mean, philosophers used to argue about this, tabula rasa, you know, and where do concepts come from in, in little chart? Are they there already? And we're just through empiricism filling them up or aren't they there? And how do you create them? And I don't know. I just know it happens. And parents are responsible and teachers are responsible to partner with those parents in building little minds that can, when they hear truths like those I just read, they say, I've seen that. I understand that. There are mysterious parts of it, but I'm not jarred by that. That has, that fits in place, these places. So, uh, those two things, uh, indoctrination and contextualization are preliminary thoughts to set you up for how I'm going to approach my topic, which is to talk about God-centeredness. Now, all of us, in a sense, are talking about God-centeredness here. I've looked at their topics. I don't want to tread on anybody's territory. Everybody's going to talk about um, a life that's God-centered, a family that's God-centered, a church that's God-centered, and a curriculum that's God-centered, and sex life that's God-centered, and workplace that's God-centered. Now, here's the problem. I'm, I'm, I'm pedagogically now taking you with me on a thought process for the next little while, which is the rest of the message. I've, I've, done, I've spent 30 years mainly trying to make that one point. God is great. You should be blown away by it, and everything should change. And you know, if you use language like God-centeredness and say a seminary curriculum should be God-centered and chapel services should be God-centered and worship services at Bethlehem should be God-centered and children's curriculum should be God-centered and youth ministry should be God-centered, I've never met a person who says, that's a bad idea. I don't think we should be God-centered. Because they know the alternatives are self or centered or man-centered or and it just doesn't sound right so they agree mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've done this with seminary deans I want the school to be God-centered mm-hmm. oh yes absolutely we agree totally and then a year later you're watching what's done you say there's a glitch here this is not happening they're, they're not getting it and, and what I realize is when you're trying to create categories of thought, getting people to agree on words is not, is not going to do it. Because you, if you choose words like God-centered, there are very few people going to rise up and say, no. So what do you do? Because this, this, this is what you'd have to do with children. If, if they're nodding their heads, mm-hmm, God is sovereign. I don't know a clue what you mean. Mm-hmm, God is... <laughs> Then, then you have to find, whether they're adults or children, you have to find a way where when you say it, they go, because then you get at the nub of, of what they're missing. So I've, I've developed a strategy on this topic that I've used hundreds of times in the last 30 years. And if you've ever heard anything I've said, you probably heard it. So here goes. My simple strategy for making sure that when I talk about God-centered anything or everything, I insist that people first sign on to the God-centeredness of God. 
And as soon as I try, they start doing like this. That doesn't sound right. God-centered life, God-centered church, God-centered curriculum, God-centered family. Yes, yes, yes. And then they go away and they're man-centered. God-centered God. He is radically, totally, completely centered on his glory. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. That does not sound right. Okay, now, we're, now we can make some progress. So at that point, when I've got them shaking their head, I like to give, you know, just to push, to push on it as much as I can, a quiz. And here's my, here's my quiz. A- after I make the point, my all-shaping conviction is that God created the universe in order that he might be known, worshipped with white-hot intensity by created beings who see his glory manifested in creation, history, and redemption. He made history that he might be praised. As soon as I, I say that and get them all, oh, no, that sounds so self-centered, it sounds so unloving, it sounds so vain, it sounds like a megalomaniac, I don't like what you're saying, it doesn't sound like John 3.16, it doesn't sound like Sunday school I grew up in, Not, this is weird, I don't want you to talk like that anymore, revert to the, the sentences that I can agree with. Then I, I give them a quiz, and it goes like this, question number one, what is the chief end of God? And they're used to saying, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of God? Answer, the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy displaying his glory forever. Question number two, who is the most God-centered person in the universe? Answer, God is the most God-centered person in the universe. Question three, who is uppermost in God's affections? Answer, God is uppermost in his affections. Question four, is God an idolater? No, he has no other gods before him. (laughs) Question five, what is God's chief jealousy? God's chief jealousy is to be known, admired, trusted, enjoyed, obeyed above all others. Last question six. Do you feel, now this is the one that really gnaws at people. Do you feel most loved by God when he makes much of you or when he enables you to enjoy making much of him forever? It's a very threatening question. Partly because so many people have never asked themselves that question and they're taken off guard by it and they know that the first half feels good. It feels, I feel like I'm being loved. If you come up to me and say, um, you've been a very helpful pastor to me or that was a good sermon or thank you so much for writing that book. Everybody knows that feels really good. And so it, It's easy for me to say, that's love in you. You're making me feel good. That's that's love. Everybody can connect with that. And then I'm saying, by virtue of this question, 
that may be a problem. Do you feel more loved by God that he makes much of you or that by dying for you and suffering for you and sending the Holy Spirit in you to liberate you, you are now enabled for the first time in your life and forever to experience maximal joy in making much of him forever. And your highest joy will not be being made much of, but making much of him. And it's, it's a shocking thing to people because very few children's curricula have helped them get ready for this. Self-esteem is the fabric of most motivating educational enterprises. Constantly show love to kids by complimenting them. Performance will follow self-esteem. Universal in America. It's a delicate thing because I'm not into beating kids up. I love as a parent to spontaneously effuse over my daughter's virtues when I hear a teacher at school mention one of them. That is a good and right thing for a parent to do. But woe to us. If we begin to massage that thing and manipulate that thing so that it becomes the defining paradigm for getting this child to do what they want and punishing them and withholding and everything is revolving around how much I compliment them or don't compliment them or commend them or don't commend them instead of pointing them away from that craving of the sinful heart to be known and, 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 and stroked and approved, that craving that's in every sinful heart, away from that to a kind of joy that has to be Holy Spirit wrought and is a thousand times more satisfying. I mean, the way you can feel the more satisfying of it is, imagine heaven. Do you want heaven to be? A hall of mirrors where you like what you see. Or all mirrors gone and God magnificent to admire with ever-expanding glories forever. Everybody knows who's, who's been to the Grand Canyon or been to the Himalayas or the Alps or just pick your favorite nature spot where some dimension of grandeur has, has drawn you out of yourself I have a few points in my life, just a few, where that happened. A mountain in Utah, where the first time I understood what Milky Way really meant, the stars were so many, they combined, and it was a sheet of white. Unspeakably powerful that night. Then, three years later, on the way back from California with my wife, pausing and stopping in Montana somewhere, big sky country. Got people from Montana? You're probably just used to it if you're there. But get out of the car at this gas station. It was as flat as you could imagine for every direction. And you looked up and clouds were moving in four different directions at one time. There were so many layers of them. And it, and it went on forever. I felt like my soul was just being pulled out of me like that. It was a kind of experience where for a flash I thought what heaven might be like. And it had nothing to do with mirrors. 
<laughs> the golden moment, a golden moment of self-forgetfulness. When you're looking at this magnificent, just flat land. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So we all know that this motif of self-esteem that works with children and that has a grain of truth in it is not what we're after. I've been in so many settings where preachers or counselors are trying to help people with a drug problem and they get around finally to the gospel, which happens to be you need to feel good about yourself and the gospel of Christ crucified is the way that you can feel good about yourself because he wouldn't have died for you if you weren't something. That's not the gospel. Oh, my. So we are trying to create a concept of God-centeredness, which draws people out of themselves. People do not understand it. They've never tasted it. And so you, you knock their blocks off by saying you must embrace God's God-centeredness to know what I'm talking about. And they're resisting. And so the, the job, the work is cut out for us. So what do you do then? You're going to take this back and you're going to have a teacher's meeting and you're going to try to transfer some of this into a, a, a group of people. What do you do then? Because frankly, I don't blame people without being taught for stumbling over God's God-centeredness. Because the Bible says we shouldn't be God's, we shouldn't be self-centered. Love doesn't seek its own unless a person takes up his cross and denies himself. He can't be my disciple. We hate pride. So you sound like you're portraying a kind of God who's simply morally defective. Why would I want to listen to you? You've got to create that kind of dissonance I have found over the years Otherwise, they don't ever get through the crud and the haze that is a man-centered interpretation of God-centeredness. What I have found is this. If a person is God-centered because they believe God is man-centered, their God-centeredness is man-centeredness. If you make much of God because he makes much of you, you are making much of you. If you treasure God because God makes much of you, then you don't treasure God because of the excellencies that he has in himself. So this is a very, very big issue, helping break apart people's thought that they are God-centered when they're not. They're not. They've never been shocked enough by what the Bible really says. So that's where we are now. We're at the Bible. And I'm just going to take seven or eight minutes here to just list maybe 15 or 17 passages of Scripture. 
And these pass- I've chosen these passages of Scripture a little differently than I sometimes do to take you from eternity to eternity right through the way we experience God. And all these texts are chosen simply to show you that the Bible really, really stresses God's God-centeredness. Now, I think you can make some headway with Bible believers here. You might be able to make some headway with unbelievers because the, pa- the Word of God has power. Even if they don't believe it, it has power to, to break in on them. So let me just read these to you. Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. He predestined us to be His sons to the praise of of the glory of His grace. That's why He predestined us to be His children, so that we would praise the glory of His grace. That's what I mean by God's God-centeredness. That's God designing that. We usually go to that verse, and people who are looking at it through the grid of man-centered God-centeredness see that we should praise God. Not a problem. Yes, we should. But did you read the verse? The The logic of the verse says, God predestined us for that. That was his idea that you do that. It would be like me saying to you, now the way I've planned this evening is so that when I'm done, you will all really applaud loudly for me. <laughs> and if I made that clear to you, you would feel bad about that. You would think I'm sick and, and you'd be right. So... We're trying to get over the hump of why it's so bad for me to do that, to be self-exalting, and so right for God to be self-exalting. That's what you have to do biblically is, why, why is that? Why is it right for God to be self-exalting and so wrong for everybody else to be self-exalting? Psalm 19.1. God created the natural world to display His glory. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Everybody says, Ray, who set it up that way? Jeremiah thirteen eleven, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. God talking to Israel. You are my servant. I will be glorified in you. That they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. I've chosen you, Israel, so that you might be my glory on the earth. It's about me. You're about me. Psalm 106, 7. He saved them at the Red Sea for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. He saved them for his namesake. Ezekiel 20, 14. I acted in the wilderness for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I brought them out. 1 Samuel 12, 20. After they ask for a king in a sinful way, fear not, for the Lord will not cast away his people for his great name's sake. He's not going to cast you away for his great name's sake. Ezekiel 36, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. How shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Romans fifteen eight. 
Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That is, he became the Jewish Messiah. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. God sent Jesus as a Jewish Messiah so that he might demonstrate God's faithfulness to his promises and in order that nations might glorify God for his mercy. Mercy comes to the nations so that something will happen. What? And we usually say they'd be saved and go to heaven. Right. Not the ultimate point. When they get to heaven, what are they going to do? And why would they want to go? Well, hell is hot. (laughs) Bad answer. It's because God is there and we find our ultimate joy in glorifying him. That's why he died for us. Now is my soul troubled. This is John 12. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And that's the way Jesus talked to his father the night before he died. Father, what shall I say? Deliver me here? No. Let's finish it. Let's do what we came to do. Make your name great tomorrow morning. Second Corinthians 5.15 He died for all. Now this is the gospel we're talking about here. Know the God-centeredness of God in the gospel. Listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. You see what that's saying? Christ died for you so that you would no longer be centered on yourself, but centered on him, which means he died to make himself central in your life. He died for you to make himself supreme in your life. The cross was radically self-exalting while it was the most self-sacrificing moment in the universe. The goal of it was to put the treasure of the universe in your heart supremely esteemed above all other treasures, namely Jesus. That's why he died. Philippians 2.9 God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. What's the next phrase? To the glory of God the Father. Now do you know who, who, who is the actor at the beginning of verse 9 going there? God the Father. God raised him from the dead to get there. The glory of the Father. The Father raised the Son from the dead so that the Father would get glory through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is, this is, you cannot escape God's God-centeredness in the Bible. It is everywhere. So I'm just pushing people's face in it, okay? This is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm just saying, I don't care how much you dislike this, I'm not letting you go until you see that it's here. Now we, we're gonna, we're gonna turn this around for you. We're gonna turn this into gospel for you. We're gonna make you love this before we're done. We're gonna put a foundation under your feet like you've never known before. But I'm not letting you get out of this. There's no cheap, quick solution to this. Dislike for what you see here. See it, own it, dislike it, don't run from it. There is an answer. Stay with me. That's what we're doing. Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. You enjoy being forgiven and having your sins washed away? Why did God do it? He did it for his own namesake. 1 Peter 4.11, most common verse I use in ministry, I think. Whoever serves, let him serve in the strength that God supplies. Whoever serves, which is what I'm trying to do right now. Whoever serves, do this, John Piper, right now, right now, prayerfully, humbly, dependently. Do this right now in the power that God supplies so that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the dominion forever. The giver gets the glory. Serve in the strength that he supplies so that in everything he gets the glory. So God is giving my enablement right now so that he will get the glory. That's why he's put me here. I could be sinning right now, blowing it big time inside. He's not. He knows why I'm here. He knows what he's up to. And it's all about him. Second uh, Acts. 1223, immediately an angel of the Lord smote Herod, killed him with worms, remember? He was eaten with worms because he did not give glory to God. Kings and princes should give glory to God. They should acknowledge God. Barack Obama should acknowledge God as the source of everything in his life. And, and if he doesn't, he may be eaten by worms someday. Second Thessalonians 1.9, when he comes on that day, second coming, to be glorified, in his saints, to be marveled at in all who believed. Why is Jesus coming back? He's coming back to be marveled at. So if you say to Jesus today, why are you coming back someday? Because I'm going to be praised. My, oh my, what a day that's going to be. There will be a kind of praising of me that day that has never been before or ever will be again. It will be the great day of Christ-exalting praise. That's why I'm coming that sound vain? Well, sure it does to a lot of people. You've got to figure out why. Why Why is that not unvirtuous? Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Revelation 21.23, last text. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. God is so into being all in all, and so overflowing with a passion to be pervasively 
presently glorious, he's going to replace the sun and the moon with himself in the last day. We won't be disappointed in that, I promise you. So now we have a crisis in people's lives, and I'll just take a few more minutes to try to relieve the crisis. The crisis is we, we, we liked your idea that all of life should be God-centered. We thought we agreed with you. You don't think we agreed with you. And so you confronted us with this thing, namely God's God-centeredness. And we didn't like the sound of that. It sounds vain. It sounds self-exalting. It sounds unloving. It sounds like a megalomaniac. And now you just spent 10 minutes rubbing our nose in it. And we don't know if we want to even be Christians anymore. That's serious. I have, I have articles. I have letters of people who have refused to come to the faith precisely because the concept of God's requiring praise seems unvirtuous to them. It seems vain. It seems like uh, weak kings needing adulation. I don't take this lightly. I have created a huge moral obstacle to faith in God at this moment if the Holy Spirit doesn't help me. Because I hate self-exaltation. I hate it in you. I hate it in me most of all. I hate it in my children. I hate pride. Pride is the worst, most horrible, rooted, causing all evils in the world sin there is. And here I am describing Almighty God in categories that for so many people feel wicked because they don't have the categories I'm trying to create. But I, frankly, I just have not found any way to get breakthroughs for people without bringing them to this crisis over time. And so the, the solution, as many of you know, lies in, in this. I'll, 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 read, I'll read a passage from John 11 and uh, get the solution from it, sum it up, and, and we'll, we'll close. Here's John 11. Now, here's what I'm trying to do. I want help from the Bible now. What I think doesn't matter at all. I want to say that to my children. I want to say that to my parishioners over and over again. My opinions don't matter much. Bible matters infinitely. If I can't show you my opinions from the Bible, you shouldn't care much about them. So what I want right now is help from the Bible for why that portrait of God that I just displayed isn't ugly. In fact... It's not only not ugly, it's beautiful. It's the foundation of life and joy and gospel and steadfastness. And I'll, I'll use this text. John 11, 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with the ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. I think that's pointed out here, even though it hasn't happened yet in the gospel. Very strange. This is going to happen later. It's the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment because he's trying to make sure we know that the relationship between Jesus and these two women and their brother is really precious, really deep, really sweet, really loving. This is what we want God to be like. I do. I want him to be like this. I want him to have relationships like that. Tender, warm, Intimate, 
caring. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love. Now, there's the second time it occurs. First time was in the picture of Mary anointing Jesus. He whom you love. He whom you love. I want to know what love is. I want to know how God loves. Because you just painted a picture that doesn't look loving to me. It looks self. He whom you love is ill. And Jesus heard this. When he heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So now we have another category introduced. So you've got the love category introduced. He loves Lazarus. He loves the sisters. And he's saying, this sickness is all about glory. It's about glory. Glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister. So third time, John is underlining. He loves them. He loves them. He loves them. He loves them. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then you get this category exploding. And I pray category creating word. So. Or therefore. Therefore, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is where you want to go with little children. They won't be able to do this early. Different children come to the ability to do this. Some at 7, 10, 13, others later to handle logical relations like this. But I hope you can handle it. I'm just going to collapse it down now. Verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, he did not go heal him, but let him die. Now, there's a category of thought here that I think is infinitely important. How can this be love? Clearly, the Gospel of John, the writer of John, wants us to ask that question. He emphasizes love, 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 and then he says, therefore, and the thing immediately before the therefore is love, and the therefore leads to let him die. And he's going to be dead four days. And then he goes, and he raises him from the dead. And he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Which takes us back to verse 3. No, verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So I just step back from those six verses, having brought in the later verses in the chapter to know how the story ends. And I say, what, what were you trying to tell me about love here? The love of God, the love of Jesus. What were you trying to tell me? And I think this is the word. He's trying to tell me, and he does it in numerous places in the Gospel of John. The main way that God loves us 
is not by making much of us or by sparing us trouble, but by doing what he has to do to make the glory of his Father and himself hit home for our enjoyment. Here's the way it rescues the God of all those 17 texts. The God of all those 17 texts is consistently lifting up God. I'm lifting up God. Myself, worship me, praise me, know me, love me, treasure me, be amazed at me, wonder at me, stand in awe of me. And now you add, because this is what love does. Love does whatever it has to do to provide the beloved with that which will provide the deepest and longest satisfaction. And that isn't you, it's God. The reason that it's vicious for you to lift up yourself and say, praise me, honor me, worship me, love me, admire me, treasure me, is because at the moment you do that, you are distracting people from the very thing that can give them the deepest and highest pleasure, namely God. But if God does it, if God says, worship me, praise me, love me, honor me, stand in awe of me, treasure me, at that very moment, he's lifting up the one thing that will provide you with the deepest and longest joy in the universe, namely himself, which is the meaning of love. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the most important act of love. You can't copy him in this. The way to copy him in this is to say, God exalts God in order to be loving. I must exalt God in order to be loving. Not God exalts self in order to be loving. Therefore, I must exalt self in order to be loving. That's the trick. That's the trick the devil played on Eve at the tree. You want to be like God? She should have said, we're already like God in the way we should be like God. Namely, we're reflectors. Our joy comes from reflecting, from getting outside ourselves. And he comes with this tricky... Now, the, the way it's really cool and satisfying to be like God is to take over his role. Begin to have some of his independence. Begin to look in the mirror and see God. And they bought it. We've been buying it ever since. We build whole curriculums around it. And one of the meanings of this conference is we just desperately long to raise up generations of young people who don't have to hear me or Bruce or Paul at some conference when they're 25 have their world wrecked by God-centeredness because they already believe it. And they're able to help all these people around them. Why you, why you got a problem with what they're saying? Come on, let's... That's what's in the Bible. I've known this since I was three. That's what, that's what we, we long for, to be, be able to pour out their lives in rescuing people from self-centeredness and self-exaltation. Conclusion. We're not into indoctrinating. We want to teach the truth and teach it in a way 
that enables children eventually to test all things and hold fast to what is good and to model for them a way of thinking that will make them uh, strong in the way they handle the Bible and other thoughts someday. Number two, we don't just do contextualization by trying to learn the words the kids have, use those words, put into them what they can already understand. We have to create categories. We have to create thought forms and create concepts for them. And lastly, uh, the most important thing in the world is that all of life should be God-centered. All curriculum should be God-centered. Churches should be God-centered. And a good litmus paper test of whether you are God-centered is whether you will embrace God's God-centeredness and can get to the point where you don't stumble over it as sub-moral, but exult in it as God's highest excellency and your highest pleasure. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, I pray now that you would take this input and all the other plenary sessions and 40 seminars and do a glorious work in 42 states and eight foreign countries and a thousand people and tens of thousands of children and multiple generations yet to come. Oh, Lord, we just stamp our arrows on the ground now many times saying, make the ripple effect of these days greater, bigger, more glorious for churches than we could ever imagine. Lord, may it come true what David said, that when somebody in the church is stumbling over some theological, big, God-centered issue, somebody says, why don't you go ask the people in the children's department? <laughs> They're the ones who've thought most deeply about this because they have the hardest job of all. Do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.